TRP is a theologically progressive Baptist church in Salisbury, Maryland. This is our podcast. You don't hear many sermon series on the book of Joshua, and for good reason. The book presents modern-day readers with many complex issues, ranging from the historicity of the stories in Joshua, to the ethics of warfare, to how to reconcile the image of a violent God with Jesus' teaching. We don't claim to have all the answers, but we're going to talk about the questions. Thanks for joining us. What's up, people? Week two. Whoa! What, what you got, like a bubbly? It's a, uh, it's a sparkling water. All right. We, all, we also, Peach. this episode is also sponsored by Lion's Distillery out of yes. St. Michael's. Some tasty whiskey. It's rum. Tasty rum. <laughs> <laughs> That's the good thing about podcasting at night, you know? Instead of coffee, we move into the adult beverages, which I guess right. in America anyway, coffee is also an adult beverage. Pretty much. Sort of. I mean, I give my kids coffee, much I to my wife's chagrin. I started frappuccinos in middle school, probably. Frappuccinos. How cool did you think you were when Norm ordered you a frappuccino? I don't know. Did you order your own? Sometimes. One frappuccino, please. Caramel frappuccino. Beautiful. Okay, so week two is the Rahab story that, again, is, is well known. Uh, we talked about that last week. It's odd that so many of us churched folk know this story from our younger years. The old um, prostitute provides shelter. Real and, quick. Yes. Can we say prostitute still? Uh, what would we prefer? Sex worker? I mean, sex worker is technically the... So here's, I think prostitute is out. Here's the interesting thing about this whole conversation what rahab's occupation is has been an ongoing discussion within biblical scholarship the text in hebrew seems to be very clear that rahab is functioning oh i forget um there's like a standard hebrew lexicon it's called halot um, it stands for Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the that? Old Testament. It's an acronym. Mm. Uh, another way you could refer to that is Kohler Baumgartner. Bless the, you. I think the two different editors. Oh, um, okay. And it would say that Rahab is functioning here either as someone who is paid for sex or someone who engages in sexual activity for fun. <laughs> I don't, that's not what it says in the lexicon, but it, it's, it's, she she's, a hoe? she's, well, I don't think we can say that <laughs> either. I mean, I'm certainly not going to. I might to. take that out. Um, of the, of the edit? Yeah. Oh, you can could, I say that? I, I mean, you did. I mean, it was a joke. Uh, right. We can, we, we can, we can roll with it here. Okay. But what, what the Hebrew is saying is that that was part of her, um, identity, let's say in the story. Okay. That made certain interpreters blush within the history of the interpretation of Joshua 2. So they sort of, um, the only word that I keep wanting to say is massage. They 
adapted. They downplayed it. They, they yeah, um, they, they, they moved away from the sexual overtones to thinking of her as an innkeeper. This was made famous by a guy named they Josephus. They dampened it because they're uncomfortable. Yeah, okay, well, hold on to that. The The innkeeper bit seems to be... They, yeah, they were blushing too much, so they said, I don't know if this really is a good way of reading it, so let's turn her into the, the friendly neighborhood innkeeper. She works at Cheers. Right. Everybody knows their name. Absolutely. Um, there is, however... Oh, Josephus is the one who popularized that. Josephus was a late first century Jewish interpreter... I can't help you here. I know. I'm just going to take your word for it. uh, A lot of his work was to present an apology, a defense of the Jewish people to Rome. So he, in one of his works called um, Jewish Antiquities, he went through the Bible and reread the Bible, which, which shines a real beautiful light on how people around the time of Jesus were thinking about the Old Testament, right? This is part of the whole tradition called um, the rewritten Bible or the inherited Bible, because he's not just coming up with stuff. He's providing evidence of how folks were interpreting the Hebrew Bible at this time. And I'll just go ahead and tell you, they were doing weird stuff with it. Okay. But so was Paul. And so was Jesus, according to the Gospels, so were the other New Testament authors. So Josephus provides like a, a, a helpful lens on how to see the New Testament, how they were using the Old Testament, how the New Testament's authors were using the Old Testament. But in his retelling of the Joshua story, he turns Rahab into an innkeeper. And it seems as though the only thing motivating that was, I don't really want to say, I mean, can Maybe he was sitting in the booth saying, can we, can we say, can we say prostitute? Can we just call her an innkeeper instead? I mean, I'm saying that because it's sort of a slur at this point, but. Yeah. It's like saying homeless instead of unhoused. Yeah. It's in the same category now. That's all I'm saying. So I, I will say this. Everything that I have been reading uh, commentaries and otherwise about this story, they're not afraid to use the word prostitute. I mean, I feel like the that development is recent. Okay. Ish. Um, all right. Well, let's let's put a let's put a flag in the air and say Tessa and I do not really know what we're doing, and if we need to to move directions, we can. I'll, I'll go ahead and say this too. Um, innkeeper is sort of a, a thing that people were saying. They also were saying that Rahab wasn't. A sex worker, but she was a a, a bar owner, which is fun. Mm-hmm. And they're basing this on ancient Near Eastern extra biblical texts. Does that phrase make sense to everybody? Yes. So s- things that were written that are not the Hebrew Bible, but were written in the same time frame ish, mm-hmm. or things that would have um, alerted us to what was in the air. At the time the Bible was being written. So like an example could be other creation narratives. Yeah, good one. So like Enuma Elish is is a creation story from Babylon that was 
roughly contemporaneous with some of the creation traditions that came to be placed in the Hebrew Bible, and we learn a lot about what the Hebrew Bible is doing when we compare it to what other texts are doing. So some people had said there's a, I believe there's like a linguistic tie somehow, I don't remember what it is, um, but it seemed to suggest maybe that Rahab was functioning as a bar owner. Now, I'll also say this, and this this ties into our whole debacle of prostitute, sex worker, what do we what do we label this? Um, some people have said that the that the presentation of Rahab in the story mutes the fact that she maybe isn't a an empowered entrepreneur so much as she is uh, within functioning within like an indentured slave debt sort of situation. Her family owes money. She has stepped in to help pay the, the fees. And this is the way in which she knows how to reimburse her family's name. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's not just Rahab as this um, local business owner. Right. Who's going to the Chamber of Commerce and, you know, get, putting out business cards. It's it's She's functioning in a different way. So there's a lot of things going on with, with Rahab in this particular story and how it's framed, which is part of what we want to tease out tonight. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say this as well. We are not going to read the entire text of Joshua chapter 2. So if you are not a churched person, if you do not have background with this story, I would encourage you to hit pause and to read Joshua 2 and then come back to this so the conversation will make more make more sense now that you have a better frame of frame of reference. I'll give you the bullet points of the story though. Um, Joshua decides to send two spies into the land. Uh, right off the bat, this, you know the one. Yeah, right. Right off the bat, this is weird because at the end of chapter one, they are making moves to cross the Jordan and to go into the promised land. And then in the beginning of chapter three, they cross the Jordan and they go into the promised land. Joshua chapter two could almost be completely removed from the narrative as a whole, and we wouldn't lose that much of the story. You know what I mean? Yes. So some people have thought that this is part of the editing of the book of Joshua where somebody has taken potentially an old folk tale about a couple of spies and a sex worker. There's a lot of speculation around this story. So <laughs> I, I wish people could have seen like what my shoulders just did. Like they just got so sad and like, like lumpy. And, like, oh, gave just, up. oh my gosh, you're so right. Nobody knows anything. But and, it's fun to speculate. It is. It, well, it sort of is fun to speculate. This sort of stuff is is real monumental speculation. So there's one commentator, Richard Nelson, who says, all right, there's three different versions of this story. The first version is like the oral tradition. And this oral tradition functioned in order to provide an etiology of the presence of Rahab's family Divine. within Israel. Divine. 
Okay, so etiology is, uh, let's say, a made-up story to explain a present-day phenomenon. I think okay. I talked about this in the aforementioned so like podcast that will not be aired. It will never be see the light of I day. love how I keep making it into like, you can't ever hear it. <laughs> it's so secretive and yep. you'll learn all of my deepest secrets. It wasn't, I mean, it's not like it was that bad. It was no. just a lot. Yeah. It was too much. Yeah. Um, so here's, here's the example that I use for etiologies. There's a pile of rocks that looks like a city has been destroyed. Mm -hmm. And then people sort of uh, make up a, a, a story about how it came to be that the city that was previously here was destroyed. Okay. Know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know Based if... Based on nothing based on see this where like the way that i'm presenting it is they're just spinning tails out of whole cloth Mm -hmm. and that's not necessarily the case um but but they're not archaeologists who the The, the ancient etiologists the the etiologists are not archaeologists so they're not looking at actual evidence they're just speculating on yeah so okay so so here's here's the the situation israel has a foreign family that's been brought in and that doesn't go with a lot of their other sacred texts. This will come up again, but Deuteronomy chapter 7, Deuteronomy chapter 20, they make it pretty clear that when Israel was to go into the land, they were supposed to destroy everything that they saw. So here's here's Deuteronomy 7. And this this is this is this is harsh, okay? It says when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering into possess and drives out before you many nations. Are you ready for my pastor joke? Can I do it again? Can I keep doing it yeah. over and over? Okay. Mm-hmm. These are the nations that he's going to drive out, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Mosquito Bites. I first heard that pastor joke when I was a mere lad. And he's still using it. And I still do use it. Some things really stick with you. They sure do, because I have no idea what that sermon was about. But you remember mosquito bites. I do. Okay, so um, all these nations, they're going to be driven out from before you by God. It says, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. In Deuteronomy 20, it's even more intense. Um It says, completely destroy them. And then it lists all of the mosquito bites. As the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they are going to teach you to follow all the detestable things that they do in worshiping their gods. Before that, it says, don't leave anything alive that breathes. So these are intense texts. So the problem is you've got Israel, these sacred texts that say, get rid of everything. And then you've got Rahab and her family within the midst of Israel. You've got foreigners. So actually a better way of framing that would be you have people not Israelite who are a part of Israelites, and then they sort of have this narrative that they tell, this folk story, as Nelson would say. That's the first layer. It's this um, independent 
freestanding story that explains why this non-Israelite group is part of the Israelites. And they go back to, well, you see, there one time there were these two spies, and they went into the land, and they went to the local sex worker's house, and then the king sent messengers and said, bring out the people that have come to you, right? And, they, and then the story begins to unfold. And Nelson would say, originally, it was meant to function as this explanation for why a foreign people group has been brought in to Israel. Then his second layer of speculation then becomes, and then later on, there was an editing of that story that brought it into the book of Joshua. And then later on, the third layer is, uh, there was another layer of editing that brought it into the Deuteronomistic history. Remember that collection, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings? We talked about that last week, where certain scholars would say those four books have been brought together intentionally and edited by um, editors a couple, probably a couple of different times to retell the story from the point of Israel's entrance into the land and to their dismissal in the Babylonian exile in the 6th century. Okay, so he's he's speculating all these different layers of the story. And the only thing that he really has to work on is the text in front of his face. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The questions that, that scholars are wrestling with are... At their core, they're like they're they're textual questions. So when something seems to be at odds, or there's something that um, ha exhibits some tension, then they try to explain how these things within the text came to be. Now Joshua two, um, it's weird again because at the end of Joshua one. They're talking about going across the Jordan River and into the Promised Land, and they don't. Instead, Joshua sends spies into the land and says, go look at the land, especially Jericho. Mm -hmm. And you could almost take that entire narrative out because nothing else comes of it except in the conclusion of the story, right? Rahab is living in Jericho, and then we know that Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho. Mm-hmm. And we know that the walls come down. Right. And we know that um, Rahab, or at least we're told, that she lives in the wall. Mm -hmm. We'll maybe talk about that in a little bit. So at the end of the story, after they've marched around the, the town one time for six straight days and then seven times on the seventh day, and the walls all fall down, you have to say, whoop, well... We have to explain how Rahab's still here, so let's tack on a couple verses at the end of that story to explain how Rahab survived mm -hmm. what appears to be the decimation of the city walls. Right. So then they say, because that seems like a tack on in Joshua chapter 6, you could just take the whole thing out, and then maybe, this is where Nelson would say, maybe it had a previous life that had nothing to do with Joshua or Jericho or the battle or the Israelite conquest, and it was just a story that was meant to uh, provide explanation for why this people group exists in present-day Israel. Are we supposed to think that she and her family are the only ones that survived? 
from from the the story of the Jericho battle, yeah, hmm. that's how it's portrayed anyway. Everybody else um, does not survive. Now here, okay, Ugh. here's the thing about Joshua. In chapters 1 through 12, you've got um, the battles of Israel as they go into the promised land. Even more specifically, from chapters 6 through 12, you've got these battles. And the way that they are presented, they are complete. They are total. Uh, Israel is, is victorious, other than the kerfuffle at Ai, where... Achan's sin causes them to lose the battle the first time. Everything else, like they live up to Deuteronomy chapter 7. But then there's some other texts in the book of Joshua that present a different picture where the conquest wasn't total and everyone didn't, in fact, die. So you have these texts that's like, everybody died. And then you have other texts within the same book that say, well, not everybody died. So you've got, again, and this is where people would say like, oh, that's, that's a tension in the text and we need to explain that. Mm-hmm. So then they immediately go to something like maybe there was two additions. They try to fill in the... They, they try to fill in the blanks and make sense of why these two things... They don't try to harmonize those two things, meaning they don't try to make those two things make sense together. They try to explain why they appear in the same book does that make sense? Uh-huh. So, okay, here, here's a New Testament example of what a harmonization would look like. In the book of John, Jesus cleanses the temple. It's when he chucks the tables and he says, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. Chucks the tables, gets really ticked. That happens in John chapter 2. It's one of the first things that he does. In the synoptic gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is one of the last things that he does. Historically, it seems more likely that it would be one of the last things that he did, because if you go into the Jewish temple and you start throwing over tables and um, you know getting in the face of the religious leaders, you're signing a death warrant, more or mm-hmm. less. So some people wanted to harmonize that by saying, well, I guess Jesus cleansed the temple twice. Right. He did it at the beginning because John says so, and he did it at the end because Matthew, Mark, and Luke say so. Because that's a thing something would do, someone would do. Yeah. Well, if your take is the Bible always presents history right, and must be read literally— Mm-hmm. then that is something that an interpreter would do to to protect, quote-unquote, And they their would assume Bible. there was no consequence the first time he did it. They would have to because he went on to lead a pretty successful ministry life, right? you know, in and around Galilee and Jerusalem for another three years or so. So yeah, they'd have to be reading past the historical implications of what that would do in order, and again, this is where it happens, in order to protect their version of what the Bible is supposed to be, right? So what's driving the bus for them is this idea of the Bible telling you history um, in a straightforward, objective manner as if it was jotting down things that were um, captured on a video camera. But the, the scholars that I'm talking about with Joshua, they're not trying to harmonize those two texts that are in tension. They're trying to explain 
why they exist, and they're doing that by going behind the text and saying, well, maybe this story existed at this time for this purpose, and then somebody came along later and added this piece, and that's why they it looks like it does. Okay. My students hate this. They, because one, it's speculative, and two, they don't like the idea that the Bible has these, these things that sit diffi- with, with much difficulty mm-hmm. together. Right. They can't, they can't be harm. They just kind of sit there together. You're like, oh, were these people idiots? Why didn't they clean that up? Why didn't they fix that? And I think we're working on the bad premise that the Bible has to behave in a certain way that we say. And the ancients did not think it right. was the same. Mm-hmm. In the same way that we would say, well, history means you're presenting an objective report of what happened. But in the ancient world, um, that's not how... That's not how history worked all the time, right? It was it was theological. It was the phrase that I'll use a lot is it was shaped history. Mm-hmm. It was history where you could put an event that happened at the end of Jesus's life at the beginning because you say that's a really important event, and if you're going to understand Jesus, you have to understand him through the lens of this thing that he did. And it was really at the end of his life, but I'm going to put it at the front because that was a really cool story, and it's going to set up the frame for the rest of my retelling. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's a lot about um, about Joshua chapter two. A lot of people just think that it's sort of been wedged in to its current place for reasons that we might not be able to articulate. Now, I would say, rather than speculating on the events that caused this text to be here, let's just look at the text. Let's just look at the story and see what is there for us to to learn theologically. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So you can you can have fun with all of those questions. A lot of those commentators they put all their eggs in that basket. Let's think about redaction. Let's think about editing. Let's let's hypothesize a little bit. And I and others would want to say, okay, but let's also figure out what the story is actually doing as it's as it's here. Okay. Now, there's a couple things that we can point out about this story that are maybe important. Remember, in Joshua chapter one, there's an underlying question. Tessa, do you remember the question that frames the introduction of the book? It's about Joshua. Did he fit the battle of Jericho? <laughs> no. <laughs> I really thought you had it. Because let's take your answer and put in the right word. Did he fill Moses' shoes, right? Is he, go- is he going to be the guy mm-hmm. who leads the people? I know you hate it when I put you on the spot like that. <laughs> I mean, here we are. Hey, we're just two people here in the booth, you know, just talking, yep. talking nonsense. I think the question you're referring to is, did Joshua fill the shoes of Moses? Absolutely. Yep. That is exactly, exactly the issue. And then when you turn the page into Joshua chapter two, you get this. It says, then Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim. I had a note. Um, later on in, remember like this podcast is 
I've already preached this stuff. And now we're just kind of rehashing it for either people that were unable to attend or people that want to think about it further, you know, that sort of stuff. And I had a bullet point in my notes for the sermon and it was labeled when Shatim hits the fan. <laughs> oh, I wish you had said it. Yeah, I did. I didn't talk about Shatim because um, it would have been it would have been too much. Would have been too much. We lost them. We lost them there. Game time decision. Okay. Then Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. Okay. There's a couple weird things that are happening here, but the one that I want to focus in on is this thing, this idea about secretly. When you hear that, Tessa, what, what's your, what's your immediate response? Then Joshua sent two men secretly as spies. What, what are we talking here? He sent them secretly? Yeah. So he's going behind the backs of, like, other people don't know that he's sending them? That's excellent. Um, who, what what people's backs, in other words, who's he trying to keep this secret from? Really good question. Thank you for asking yes. the question. <laughs> now, now can you answer your own question? Thank you, I will. Yeah. Um, so some people have said that it doesn't make sense to send spies secretly, like, no duh. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what spies do. Right. It's not like hey, go send some spies, but be real obvious about it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Which actually they end up doing, but send <laughs> spies secretly. There's a there's a uh, a hint maybe in the text that Joshua doesn't believe the stuff that has just been told to him by God in chapter one. Like, hey, go on in there. You're going to take the land. Everything's going to be great. He's going behind the back of God. Oh, hold on. Okay. So so he's in secret sending out spies because he doesn't believe what's about to happen and he needs confirmation from someone in addition to god okay so yeah he's either going behind the backs of israel Mm -hmm. or god and my students don't like that because they say that seems kind of silly you can't go you can't hide anything from god yeah right right we try we try all the time especially characters in the bible they try this all the time so just if just because we say like well theologically that doesn't make any sense doesn't necessarily mean that the story can't be presenting someone who's wrestling and grappling with what might be the case but he needs some confirmation he needs like a second opinion mhm i mean almost from the beginning you know adam tries to hide oh, yes Yes, and, okay, so the whole thing about um, we can't hide from God, yeah. except in that chapter. Was, Where are you? Right? <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. So in that story, you know, they they eat the fruit. That's a bad idea. They go because they're embarrassed, they're, they're shamed. They hide themselves, and then God says, hey, Adam, where are you? And as mm-hmm. I always do, it's the tone that mm-hmm. really sets us off is it, Hey, it's like playing hide and seek right. with a kid. Yeah. Or, and they're, they're a lump on the couch mm-hmm. with a sheet over their head. Yeah. You're like, oh, I don't see I don't you. See anywhere. Or is the story presenting God as asking a legitimate question? Mm-hmm. I don't know where, you, where are you, bro? Mm-hmm. Like what? I wanted to go for our stroll in the cool <laughs> of the evening mm-hmm. as we like to do, mm-hmm. but I cannot find you. Mm-hmm. So even in that story, there's hints that... Maybe Adam did hide something from God and God didn't know. Now, okay, if you want to be a a theology nerd and say, well, that's not possible, that's fine. In the story world of the text, it seems to be a possibility. Mm -hmm. 
and Joshua might be playing into that. I just want to call our attention to that and say, is this a bad omen from the start that Joshua has already received this report? Hey, go into the land. It's yours for the taking. And then he says, uh, let me send you some spies. Right. The other thing to think about here is who else in Joshua's experience sent out spies? Moses. Moses. Joshua was actually one of the 12 spies that he sent. It was the same sort of situation. Hey, go spy out the land. Except in that text, which this is interesting, all 12 spies were named Mm-hmm. And they were given very specific military type instructions like, okay, this is the reconnaissance that we need. Go into the land, figure out this, that, and the other thing. And then uh, it was even something about like produce, like see how big the grapes are. Oh. <laughs> One time I went to a, um, like a pastor's conference. This was actually a really important, this is a pretty, pretty bad side, sidebar here. Okay. A pretty important moment for me because... This is going to sound real fanboyish. Are you ready? Yeah. So at this conference, Rob Bell was there. Mm-hmm. First time I'd, I'd heard him speak. And he A, he looked so cool. Mm-hmm. You know, like he's wearing cool clothes. I'm like, that guy's yeah. awesome. He had his bleach blonde hair at the time and his big old thick glasses before they were as popular as they are now. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, this guy's cool. And he talked for like, I don't know, 75 minutes with no notes and that was a mind blower for me. I was like, oh my, who is this guy? Mm-hmm. 75 minutes. I'm on the edge of my seat watching this guy. But anyway, before we had went, the pastor who sent us said, bring back some grapes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> from, from, the, from the Moses sending spies, like go yeah. into the land and bring did us you, back some did grapes. Did you find out how big the grapes were? <laughs> hey, Rob. How big, how big, how are, big your are your grapes? Yikes. <laughs> uh, no, it was one of those conferences where it's like, none of this will translate. Uh-huh. That was the conference. I mentioned this the other day, I think, um, to you, but I'll bring the podcast community into it as well. At this crazy conference, their church was so big. First of all, they had their name written on the roof of the church with their uh, website because Dallas Fort Worth was oh wow if the plane flew right over top of it so if you look out the right side window it's like oh there's this church.com you know oh my gosh um it was a massive complex and they had i kid you not segway dealers on site to let pastors ride test drive some segways what so that they could buy some to use to get around their quote church campuses all i can think about is job <laughs> job bluth yeah not not the not uh, job not, from the bible not biblical Gob. yeah job with a with a g yeah so that's well, that's a lot so we did we brought back no no grapes because no you segues. know the, the church was in gumboro delaware yeah segways were not you know part of the deal no nor can you go to this massive conference and try to rip off what a church of 19,000 is doing. But... No. Yeah. So, so you were a spy is what you're saying. Yes, I, I was. So in that text, all the spies were named. They were given very specific orders. Uh, and in this text, they're not named. It's just two young it's men. Like two who, dudes. Two dudes. With hey, no specific instructions. Hey, you... It's almost like, hey, um, you, you over there in the red... 
and the blue. Yep. Come here. Come here. I got a secret mission for you. Don't tell God, though. You know? I got a secret mission. Go look at some stuff. Yeah. And that's it. Like, they don't have marching orders. It's go view the land. Go look at the land, especially Jericho. Yeah. Right? And they don't, when they come back, they don't say anything about the most obvious military th- you if there's anything about jericho that you'd want to know it would be hey man there's a really big wall yeah a, they've got a really big wall they don't say any of that okay so it just there's a question right off the bat is is joshua like, this plan was not thought through very thoroughly and i mean it, what's he doing is he trying to keep all this secret because he doesn't believe things is this a bad omen for him as a leader or um is Joshua just trying to do what Moses did because that was his predecessor? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like um, when the boss is out of town and then the number two becomes the boss for a week and they try to do all the things that the boss does, but mm-hmm. you can tell it's like, this is not who you are. Like, uh-huh. what are you doing? It's like you put on your dad's sport coat for a bit and it just doesn't fit. Yeah. So is that happening? It just it initially asks, makes us ask, what is Joshua doing here in this particular story? It's also very funny, I think. Go, at, you know, secretly be a good spy. It says they went, they entered the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. They spent the night there. And the king of Jericho immediately was told that these two guys were there. It's almost like if a kid retold the Moses story. But they didn't have any specific names. Do you know what I mean? Okay, so the, um, well, say a little bit more because I don't want to go where you're not trying to take us. It's it's like if a kid heard the story, not this story, but Moses' story, Moses where there were actual specific things. Like, yeah, Moses sent these two guys, and he told him to go look at some stuff. Yeah. And okay, so that might be part of it. Remember. Last week, we talked about how Joshua is being depicted as Moses part two, the new Moses. Right. So some people have said, maybe these stories, these traditions have been shaped in order to give you that image. So it's not so far off of a kid kind of botching the story and rehashing it in a different place with different characters. Mm-hmm. Now, this one goes this one goes haywire right. Right, right off the bat. So you've got these people. Also, just note, there's a lot of sexual innuendo in this story, especially in the Hebrew. Um, so there's a couple different ways that you can talk about having sex in Hebrew. One is to know <laughs> uh-huh. in the biblical sense. Yep. As is He knew her. Biblically. Biblically. I feel like that's a that's a joke that people like to use. Uh-huh. You know? It's not not always funny. Yeah. And by always, I mean it's never it's funny. funny. Okay. Um so you can know someone, that's a euphemism that's meant to sort of, you know, cover up. You, you could read that with a kid, almost like, and Adam knew his wife. Right. What does that mean? Don't worry about it. You know, you could, if you wanted to go that route, they you could. They loved each other very much. You know what's more difficult, though, um, when the text says, and he went into her. Hate that. Yeah, it's like, ah, that's very specific. That's, that's the opposite of a euphemism. That's like more specific than just saying he had sex with her. You know what I mean? It's it's very... It's terrible. So, it. but that that term there, like the going in, that's, that's happening here in Hebrew and the laying down, that's also... Um, 
So you could get the image if you're just reading your English Bible and they spent the night there. It seems innocuous enough. Maybe she owned an inn. Maybe she was a barkeeper that had some rooms upstairs. You know, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe she wasn't a sex worker. Who knows? But in the Hebrew, it's like the, the author is kind of hitting you over the head saying, you see what's happening, right? You see all these innuendos, these double entendres. You see all of double that, entendre. right? Double, double, double entendre. entendre. Yes, Tessa and I looked up <laughs> at Rise Up not not one week ago how to pronounce double entendre because yeah, I said double entendre and she was making fun of me. So we went to Which YouTube. I don't know. You might have ended up being right. I don't remember. I don't know. But one of the pronunciations was double entendre. Somehow when I say double entendre, I immediately go to the character Andre on the league. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't, you don't strike me as the type that watches that that. show. Okay. All right. So, um, there's a lot of sexual overtones here that, that adds some rhetorical flourish to, to this story. Rhetorical flourish. But they are found out immediately. These guys are inept. They are not good at spying. Okay. And in fact, like there, there's some elements of comedy in this, in this story. So, not only do you have the spies kind of saying like, yeah, 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 we'll go, we'll go. And then the next verse, they're found out, like their cover's blown immediately. Um, on Sunday, I I made a joke about how I just kind of picture them with like fake mustaches and they're like weaseling their way into the brothel and they look so out of place, mm-hmm. you know? So there, there's, some, there's some comic elements to this. Uh, also within the story, when the king's messengers show up, uh, and say, bring out the guys that, that came here. It's unclear if Rahab in the moment is sort of like she's got the door cracked and she's talking to the people and behind her she's telling some other uh, girls in the space to take the guys up to the roof and hide them or if she had already hidden them. But either way, these spies are on Rahab's roof covered in flax. Like it's it's comical at how how terrible they are at their job and then later on in the story um they have to leave by going out of the window and the way the story reads you could almost think of the um the interchange that they have as happening while these guys are hanging on to the rope dangling outside of her window that's when she strikes the deal so rahab seizes the opportunity to say hey we know who your God is. We know what your God has done, and I don't want to die. So promise me that you will deal kindly with me. That's a covenant word, chesed in Hebrew. Chesed. Yes, it's very fun to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's this image potentially of these guys hanging out the window, having this conversation, which adds some adds some layers to to potential comedy in the story other than that though like it's it's just it's beautifully written there's a lot of intrigue there's a lot of suspense like it's a fascinating story but it all it all begs the question like what's going on here right like what's the point do you you have any thoughts tessa some some initial initial feelings about what this particular story is meaning to to teach or instruct or why it's here no <laughs> you're you're not you're not alone um 
because it's certainly it's it's more than just a potentially funny um, story. It's also more than a, a light being shown on who Joshua is. That's not really the point here. You've got this woman who is a marginalized character within her own town, right? Some people would say that is um, suggested by where she lives. the The text it, it's it's not as clear as it might as it might seem. It says that she lives in the wall, and there's a lot of um, historical background here. So some people have said that Jericho had uh, something that's called a casemate wall. So basically, think of a big circle as the the outer exterior of the wall and then another circle on the inside and those two circles are sort of joined together and then people lived in between the outer wall and the inner wall it's like a double layered wall why am i just imagining harry potter's closet that he lived in i don't know because that was inside of the house it was uh, I thought you were going to say, "Why am I picturing Hogwarts?" And you wouldn't be you wouldn't be alone in that. I think a lot of people have sort of over embellished um, the walls of Jericho. Uh, there's one scholar, Lisa Ray Beal, who um, has this little video. I'll put it in the show notes for you. But she's talking about we usually go to these really massive sort of walls and these uh, medieval castle-like structures, but that's probably not the best understanding of what um, Jericho had going on. In fact, some people say the wall was less of a casemate wall, a a double-layered wall, and more of just like houses back-to-back in a circle. Okay. There's a lot lot of ambiguity here. Back-to-back in a circle. Just kind of attached Hmm. Just, but not facing each other. Well, I mean, just... So, duplexes. What's <laughs> happening? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> yes, duplexes, but no little driveways in between. Like, they're just... All the duplexes are jammed together in a circle. This is not making sense to my brain. <laughs> I'm doing I'm doing hand motions right now that like, are really not townhouses? helpful. Townhouses? Yeah, but there's they're all connected. So just have one townhouse. Townhouses are connected. Oh, yeah. Okay. But turn them into a a circle or a a square. And they're facing. Or even a rectangle. Front doors are on on the outside. (laughs) I'm a visual person. So I think think the doors would actually be on the inside. So you've got to go through the gate. And then once you get in, you can can go into your home. But I mean, this is part of the issue. Um, It's difficult to figure out what is actually meant by this. Especially the added complication of when the Israelites go into Jericho, they destroy the walls, yet Rahab is is saved. So that, that becomes problematic unless you want to play the it was a miracle card. You know? Which isn't yeah. a which isn't a bad card to play. It's just realize that um, her placement on the wall is is difficult to reconstruct archaeologically or historically as to what that means but the purpose of it is she's on the outs of the outs right she is a marginalized character who functions in this story as as an other 
who isn't probably even accepted within her own community because of either the vocation or because of the indentured um, slave debt. You know, Mm -hmm. she's a woman. It's presented as this is her home. So she lives in the wall, but there's an upstairs. Yeah. See, this is what I'm saying. And a roof. It's it's difficult to wrap your brain around because our thoughts of what constitutes the walls of a city immediately go to medieval. You're thinking castles and knights. Mm -hmm. You're thinking archers on the top with their longbows. There's a moat. Of course, there is. Yeah. This is not the. This is not ancient Jericho. Appreciate a Tiskill model of what this actually. One of my students, I thought this was brilliant, and I I don't know which episode this was from, but he pulled an image from. the Last Airbender, the cartoon, mm-hmm. it was this big, massive wall and these houses that were like attached to it on the outside. It looked hmm. pretty cool. I don't know what kingdom that was. I'm guessing like the air kingdom. Sure. I don't know. they were know. up in the air. I don't know. And Arthur, if you're hearing this, you're probably thinking like, no, it's not the air kingdom, <laughs> you idiot. Because well, Arthur knows all things. get back to us and let yeah. us know what's up. So, the, yeah, there's there's issues there with, with where she lives. But the point is, she is a marginalized character. And in this story, she is using whatever she has within her periphery to save herself and her family. Some people would call this like a, a trickster motif, where a marginalized character ends up using um, their skills to their advantage and tricks someone. So here she's tricking the king. She's tricking the messengers. You might say she's tricking the spies because she's she's saving them. And then she's using that as leverage to wheel and deal. Mm-hmm. Like the whole crux of this story is she knows um, what, what God has done and what God will do. She reports to the spies that everyone is afraid of what's going to happen. And then she goes on to sort of demand them to take care of her because she has taken care of them. Right. Kind of shrewd. It's very shrewd, but it all, uh, this I think this is also pretty brilliant. So remember Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 20. Kill everything that moves. When you go into these places, destroy everything that you see. This is the first battle in the story. This is the first chance that they have to live up to Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 20. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And here we have Rahab saying, well, don't kill me. And the spies are like, okay, sure. We'll let you go. Also, uh, do they have the power to do that? What's their, what authority are they speaking from? They're speaking from the authority of, we will say, uh, this is me reading in, and some people aren't going to like this. The authority they're speaking from is in the story. They're saying whatever they need to say to live. I would also propose that Rahab is saying whatever she needs to say to live. Mm -hmm. I I don't know if I see Rahab as the first convert necessarily. This isn't a story of Rahab getting saved for me. Not in the spiritual way no this is the story of of a really intelligent empowered woman 
using the advantages that she has in a world that has told her she has no advantages Mm -hmm. to procure for herself and her entire family Mm -hmm. safety. Yeah. But when you read that against the frame of kill everything that moves and then you have Rahab throwing a huge wrench into that right off the bat, it sort of opens up this door for a... um, a reading against the grain of the Deuteronomy text that says maybe that's an idealistic take that was never meant to be enacted. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, so she becomes this, and I don't mean this pejoratively, she becomes this token for inclusion into the family of God that speaks volumes over the annihilationism of Deuteronomy's law code. From the outside, it seems really ironic that the woman and her family who is on the outs are the only ones who survive. Say that again. It seems ironic from the outside that the only oh. one who survives is the woman who's like outside of yeah society yeah i don't know how much we can read into that i i think just the very nature of her um what we know about her in the story where she's living what she's doing it seems as though that she is a marginalized named well, that's really important too, because the, and this, I would say that's probably part more of the um, reading against the Deuteronomy grain, right? Because within the story, as Tessa just said, the only named character, and get Joshua out of here. Forget Joshua; he does he doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So, I, I would say if we're gonna if we're gonna hold on to this view that Joshua chapter two has been taken and put into this place, which I think is a is a fine idea, the frame of Joshua in verse one and the spies reporting to Joshua at the end, that's just there to help the story move along. So the real characters in the story of Joshua chapter two is Rahab, named sex working woman, foreigner, Canaanite, supposed to be dead. Right. Two random spies who are terrible at their job and probably just want to go to a brothel to have sex with people. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that's just me trying to be edgy or what, but it just seems to make sense to me that they think, hey, well, while we're here, you know, why not? And the fake mustaches and the, mm-hmm. yeah. And then you've got the king of Jericho, not named, the messengers, not named. So it's like whenever characters are named that's a big deal whenever a woman is named in the hebrew bible that's a really big deal and for her to be named here is is should be like just hitting you in the upside the head to say like there's something happening here and her inclusion is speaking volumes theologically mm-hmm. okay so we i think we can jump from here Mm-hmm. to Rahab's uh, inclusion in the New Testament, right? Because um, 
this story gets picked up by Matthew in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. Now again, if you're approaching the Bible as this is history, it's objective, it's telling us the facts, that's not happening in Matthew's genealogy at all. Matthew's genealogy is very different than Luke's. These are the only two genealogies of Jesus that we have in in the New Testament. Um, Matthew's is clearly stylized. It moves from Abraham to David, David to exile, exile to Jesus. Like, and it also has um, recurring numbers. There's something about sevens and fourteens. I forget how it all works, but you could. It's like it's clear that this is something that Matthew has put together as like an an interpretation of the history of Jesus. I made this argument too on Sunday. Some of the most theologically significant texts in the Bible are genealogies, but we skip over them all the time. Matthew's is significant for a number of reasons. One, because of how stylized it is, because of the, the different moves from Abraham to David, David to exile, exile to Jesus. But also the inclusion of four women in the, in the genealogy, which is bizarre it, at this time. And those four women who are included make it even more bizarre because it is a woman named Tamar mm-hmm. who um, tricks her father-in-law into having sex with her because her father-in-law would no longer give sons to her because every son of his that she slept with, they died. Sounds healthy. <laughs> There's a little bit more going on there. Um, but Tamar, trickster, trying to trying to make her way in the world, um, and her, her two kids that result from her, uh, uh, what, what would be the term there, from her tricking Judah into sleeping with her. He thought that he was sleeping with a cult prostitute, as one likes to do. You know, during mm-hmm. the sheep shearing festivals. Oh, yeah. Um, he thought that's what it was, but it was really his, his daughter-in-law. And they end up, end up having twins. And those twins are part of Jesus' line, as is Tamar. Um, Rahab is part of Jesus' line. Ruth is part of Jesus's line. Ruth is another foreign woman. And then you have Mary. So the fact that these women are included in the um, in the retelling of Jesus's life in such a pointed way is again something that I think speaks to inclusion as a theological piece that we should be thinking about. Now, I didn't get any of this in Sunday school. No. And I haven't heard too many sermons about this, unless it's something like this. Oh, Rahab. She was a hooker, you know. In Sunday school? (laughs) (laughs) That's why Sunday school teachers like smoking a cigarette. She's a hooker, you know. She's like ripping cigs. Swirling some scotch. Listen, Rahab. No, this is more like a sermon. It plays up the sexual immorality right. of Rahab to make the point: if God can use uh-huh. a disgusting person like her, 
what can he do with you because you're less disgusting, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That, and that's not, that there, that's wrong on so many levels, uh-huh. but it's missing, it's missing the point altogether of the character of Rahab in the story, what she's doing and how her inclusion reads against the grain of the, of the Deuteronomistic ideals of what this will look like. This is the very first battle and they're already including people and Rahab is sort of kicking that off. And it's just like this little breadcrumb along the way to say, maybe there's something more going on here. So you could argue that the people who changed her to an innkeeper were actually benefiting the story because it takes away the distraction of her being a sex worker. Most of the commentaries that I would read would say, um... That's wrong, but I can't articulate why they would say that. What's wrong? What I just said? They would say that her her um, occupation's wrong. Her what she does is pivotal to the story. Oh, Be, maybe just in this way, because of all of the double entendres, <laughs> uh, because of that this underlying theme of um, what may or may not be happening here her being even more marginalized than just an innkeeper Mm -hmm. plays into it. Okay. So I think that, you know, just having those... It's just the story in the wrong hands loses a lot of its complexity. uh, Here's a a broad sweeping statement. For the crowd that views her as an innkeeper, they're probably also not going to be seeing the inclusive aspects of this story to the degree with which they might actually be embedded. So, um, gosh, it's it's a fun story, but it's not just silly, slapsticky. It's it's also very poignant. It's very serious. Like her confession, um, that's just overlaid with all this deuteronomic language. Um, her Yahwistic confession. It's just, it's very beautiful in what it accomplishes. There's lots of questions underneath of the surface. How does she know this sort of stuff? What's her angle? What's she doing? But you can kind of almost set those aside as things to pick up. And hopefully they don't distract you from this note of inclusion along the way that will help you to see what might be for the people of God down the road. I like that. Yeah. Seems seems good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's decided. There it is. <laughs> there it is. So if you're hearing this and you got a chance to take it to the pulpit, man, take it to the pulpit. Yeah. And let the people know. Right. Okay. I don't know. Well, here we go. We're a little bit a little bit over time. We've been uh shooting for, you know, right around an hour or so. And here we are. Where are we at? I have no idea. We're at one hour and two minutes. Oh. We did it. We might as well. It's the yeah. same thing. We did it. This is very much akin to me on a Sunday morning when I keep looking at the clock and my my brow is getting a little sweaty thinking, we got to get out of here. Mm. But that's my own problem. It doesn't show. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes, thank you. All right, folks. Well, we will be back next week with probably um, the, you can see how prepared I am. Probably. Probably. Uh, we're going to talk about. 
one? Uh, probably the Jordan River crossing. That's, okay. That seems to be a good one because we can talk about miracles. Yeah, yeah. We can talk about more stuff about uh, historicity because mm-hmm. I know y'all love it so much. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about what in the world does it all mean? What does it mean? Okay, see ya. Okay, bye. Whoa.